You're listening to the Crossroads Grace Podcast, a podcast of Crossroads Grace Community Church. To learn more about our gathering times and ways you can get involved, check out our website at crossroadsgrace.org. July 4th weekend that we're experiencing here. This is the weekend where we celebrate the founding of our nation in the best way possible uh, by blowing things up and trying not to light California on fire. Am I right? Um, Of course, all of you have gotten your fireworks legally and haven't crossed any borders at all. No, not at all. And uh, if you have, please invite me over, okay? That'd be fun. Um, But anyway, uh, uh, this uh, Monday marks the 246th birthday of America, and the 4th of July is a national holiday celebrating the ratification of the Declaration of Independence. Here it is. There's the incredible document there. Uh, Actually, if you look really close, you can see uh, Brian Hunt actually signed that years ago. That guy never ages. Um, But anyway, the document was sent to King George III, uh, signifying the independence from the British Commonwealth. And uh, actually, it's a a fun fact. Did you know that all of the signatures on the Declaration of Independence weren't completely on the draft until August 2nd? August 2nd. I had no idea that that was the case, which kind of means that we could just be celebrating the 4th of July and blowing things up between now and August 2nd. I just think that's the right way to do it. Am I right? Am I right? Yeah. Well, I know it's tempting to think that the moment that uh, uh, the Revolutionary War ended at Yorktown, uh, that a great nation was born overnight. Uh, into maturity. Uh, However, nothing could really be further from the truth because in the aftermath of the Revolutionary War is really when the nation was just beginning to struggle with its own identity. And uh, Thomas Paine actually said this about the aftermath of the Revolutionary War. He said this, that uh, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigue of supporting it. You see, it took about 10 years for the Constitution to be created and accepted by the 13 colonies. And there were fights about how much the federal government and how much power it should have. And those fights are still continuing to this day. And then there's fights if the government had the right to tax the people and deciding on a new currency and and a rebellion after the rebellion, right? There was another mini war after the war that the federal government had to squelch. And, And throughout American history, In the aftermath of great devastation, there were people who rose above to form a greater future. And with our faith, in the aftermath of crisis, it can be easy to to believe that we can rise, it can be hard to believe that we can rise above to form a greater future. I mean, it can be hard to believe that we can we can rise above and form a greater future when your teenager tells you that they want nothing to do with the faith that they grew up with and that they believe that Christianity is oppressive and outdated. Or, or maybe you find that uh, your wife had been exchanging text messages with a coworker from work and, uh, and it, the messages just seem a little too friendly and you really are unsure of what to do. Or, or maybe you lost a family member in a really tragic way, and you swore after that moment that you were just never gonna talk to God. You see, I believe that. I believe that our faith speaks the loudest when circumstances 
are the hardest. When difficult things happen, it says something about our faith. You see, in the aftermath of devastating moments in our faith, God can still forge a greater future. The question is, are you going to be tuned in? Are you being tuned in to God to see that in the aftermath, God can still bring great victory? You see, which brings us to our story in Noah. You see, Noah, uh, throughout this series, has been someone that we paid attention to the last four weeks. And in fact, if you haven't had a chance to, to listen to the previous messages, I'd encourage you to download our Crossroads Grace app or uh, to go to crossroadsgrace.org services and to listen to those messages because the story of Noah found in the book of Genesis just has incredible things to teach us about how to live our faith in difficult times. Well, anyway, uh, Noah was told by God, right? He was told by God that the earth had gotten really evil and that it was so bad that he wanted to start over uh, with humanity. Uh, so he decides to warn Noah that a flood is gonna be coming and that he's gonna wipe out everything. And God saw that Noah, he was actually a righteous man in all of that evil and filth, and he decided to spare Noah. Uh, so God told him, hey, I want you to build a big boat and I want your family and all the land animals uh, to get in it because a violent worldwide storm is gonna be coming. So throughout this series, we have seen how, how Noah's faith can be an example to us on how to trust God. And uh, what's really interesting is that Noah and his family and all his animals, they're at sea for 350 days, almost a full year. And, and last week we saw that, that Noah's ark, it hit the shore of a mountain called Ararat, and he waited over 40 days to see if the waters had kind of subsided a little bit, and he tested to see if uh, the waters were safe and if there was dry ground that was starting to develop outside of the ark. And so he decided to send a raven and a dove to see if there were any signs of, of, of ground uh, being available for them to, to leave the ark and go out onto. And eventually those animals brought back some stuff that kind of was a sign to Noah that's like, okay, this might be the right timing. And that brings us to this point in Genesis. Genesis chapter eight. Genesis eight, verse 13. <clears throat> it says this. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the, um, oh, I lost my part here. Uh, Noah said, remove the covering. Um, here it is. All right. The waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark. And look, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth laid or had or dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Now that's really interesting. Uh, imagine what it would be like to step out of the ark for the first time in almost a year. I mean, the feeling of the constant swaying of the boat uh, over mountainous waves. Uh, you're surrounded by the sounds of monkeys laughing at lions and, and the smell of, of elephant armpits filled the air along with the boarding breath of your mother-in-law. I mean, it was kind of rough, it was kind of rough. And uh, by the way, actually, they found out where Moses was uh, keeping the bees. Did you hear about this? In the archive, the ark, the archive, the ark, archive, ah. 
Oh, oh, oh yes, I know, it's a dad joke. Dads, you're welcome, use that around the barbecue tomorrow. Um, but I couldn't help myself, I saw that meeting, I had to do it. Um, but anyway, this whole arc thing is just like uh, cr- enough for anyone to go crazy. And, and, and now the moment for Noah has finally arrived, right? I mean, imagine, you take your step out on the land, there's no more swaying, there's no more noise, and that deafening noise of the animals and the family is starting to distantly go away as you're stepping out of the ark. And uh, the footsteps you take are, are, are not the sound of like hollow wooden boards anymore, right? They're actually, they're the sound of like a soft ground that's firm and unswaying, and at that moment, Maybe you remember, you remember the people that you left behind. And then a a contact list goes through your mind of all of the friends and neighbors and acquaintances throughout the years and they're just rolling through your mind. As you step out onto that ground, you're reminded of all of the loss. And as a group of, of only survivors out of the entire planet, Maybe a thought goes through your mind. Why me? I mean, why do I deserve to live? Why did God choose me? I mean, you think to yourself, I, I mean, I know God said that, that I was righteous, but, but am I really? I mean, I know the thoughts I have. I know the problems that reside in my own heart. Why does God choose me? Why do I deserve this gift? And then you're riddled with the next question. The, the question of what do you do now? I mean, your home has been decimated. The, the local cities and the economies uh, that, that ran uh, uh, the, the world were washed away and you have you and your family and a whole bunch of animals and a shelter that's as big as a boat like the ark in order to keep you together. But not only did Noah have to worry about leading himself? He also had to to think about how he was going to lead his family as well. I mean, how he's gonna lead his family in this scary, empty world. And and I wonder, with his family by his side, if he ever stopped to think about his grandkids and the kids after that and the kids that would follow them. You see, I wonder if Noah realize that he was at an inflection point. An inflection point is where what he does in this moment doesn't just affect him, but it affects generations for thousands of years to come. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a lot of pressure. And in the aftermath of that great devastation, we're about to be revealed to the faith that Noah had. And, but did you notice what Noah does there first? At the very beginning, the first time I read it, I didn't quite catch it, but then I read it again. It says this, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, and you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. You see, Noah doesn't step out of the ark without God telling him to do so. You see, is that kind of crazy? I mean, Noah has, has tested the waters. He's, he sent out birds. He's probably looking out the window, longing for the freedom from the stench of the ark, yet Noah trusts God's timing. 
trust God's timing to move only when God says to move. Because in the aftermath of a storm, when it comes to the aftermath, only go on God's timing. Only go on God's timing. Timing matters in a lot of things in life. In fact, has anyone uh, ever ran track before? Any track runners at all? A few track runners? Yeah, we got a, we got a couple. A couple. Okay, for the last two services, there were only like two or three track runners, and two of them were always sitting next to each other. It was just kind of funny. Um, they find each other. I don't know how, but they do. Um, but uh, maybe what's really interesting is uh, if you've ever watched, if you haven't ran track before, that's okay. Uh, but if you ever watch the Olympics, you see the 100-meter dash. There's always that guy known as the starter. And the starter is the guy that, that has like the cap gun in hand, and he points it up in the air, and he says, ready, set, go, bang, and then he pulls the trigger on the little gun. And uh, no one goes unless the starter commands. I mean, athletes' entire lives are broken down to the moment that they respond to that starter. Everything that happens before and everything leading afterwards leads to that moment of waiting for the command of the starter. If they go too soon, they're disqualified. If they go too late, they're not gonna be able to win the race. It's lost. And if you have lived long enough, you've had moments where timing matters. See, maybe it's a, a job promotion that is an incredible opportunity for you and your family, but it means uprooting everyone and moving at a crucial season of your lives. Or, or maybe it's the call that you feel God is placing on your heart to be in greater degrees of ministry, but you're just kind of scared. You feel ill-equipped. You don't know if you should jump in yet. Or, or maybe it's a promotion that, that you keep on trying for and you keep on trying for, but it just doesn't seem like that promotion is going through no matter how hard you work. Or maybe you've been accepted to multiple colleges and you're unsure of which college to pick. They all seem to be your dream school. You see, so many of us struggle to trust God's timing. And we so badly want to know God's timing, though, don't we? I mean, we keep on asking, like, hey, God, is it now? Is it now? How about now? Now, now, now. I mean, we're kind of like the kids in the backseat of the car that, like, as we're on this long trip driving along, we're like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? How about now? How about now, right? But it says in Romans 12, verse 12, it says, be joyful in hope patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Isn't that powerful? I mean, pay attention to what hope is. I mean, hope is only ever about patience. I mean, it's about waiting for the good that God has yet to establish. And, and it's the belief in something yet to happen. And really, the last thing we want to do when we're experiencing affliction or stuck in the middle of some type of storm, the last thing we want to do is have patience and wait. I mean, we want that pain. We want it over now. I mean, right? We, want, we don't want to wait and experience affliction and keep on going with that pain and difficulty. Yet throughout waiting, God wants us to grow a faithfulness in prayer talking to him when we are confused, talking to God when we don't understand the purpose of why things are happening, why his timing is the way it is, talking to him when the aftermath of the crisis seems overwhelming to us. Because when the storm recedes is when we most need to listen to God. 
when storms are over, it can honestly be tempting to think, okay, now I, I don't need God as more, right? Like, I've rubbed the lamp, I've gotten the prayer like taken care of, I've got my wish taken care of, maybe I just don't need him anymore, we're just gonna kind of move on. But here's the deal, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Just in those moments that we feel like we're the most safe and we're the most comfortable, where maybe we don't need God, guess what, that's when you need him the most because there's always another storm coming. Now, what happens next in this story is nothing shy of what a big blockbuster CGI movie could do. It's really interesting. It says this, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. So Noah went out and his sons and his uh, wife and his, wi- his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird and everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. So this is so cool. God flings the doors open, right? And he, he says, here you go, all you people have been cooped up and all you animals have been cooped up for over a year. Guess what I want you to do? Be fruitful and multiply. And all the buddies looked at each other like, okay, let's go do that. That sounds really great. But honestly, if we take a little bit deeper of a look at what this be fruitful and multiply thing is all about, it's not very different than another event that happened in the Bible just a few chapters earlier. And uh, in the book uh, of Genesis, in Genesis 1:28, it actually says this. This is at the very beginning. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So you see, Noah is just simply like Genesis part two. Like God just loves a really good sequel. That's what he's going for, right? And what's, what's really interesting about sequels, have you ever noticed that they're just usually not as good as the original. Everyone usually loves the original. Like think of, think of Jurassic Park, like the first one, groundbreaking. Changed films in a lot of ways and everything after it just kinda seemed like, eh, kinda mediocre or, or think about Jaws, right? Think about Jaws, like how many times do you need, there's four of them, how many times do you need like to show a story about a huge shark eating people and then shark dying? Like that's just like rinse and repeat, sorry for the spoilers, I know, I know, I'm sure you were planning on watching that for the 4th of July, great 4th of July movie. Um, but, and then, and then what about like the Fast and the Furious? And I know, I know some of you are like, like that's my jam, Dan, don't mess with Fast and Furious, that's my movie. I had someone boo me in the last service, that's okay. I still love them, they're wrong, but whatever. There's nine movies, there's nine of these movies. I just can't believe that we've made nine of them so far and every one of them has made a ton of money. Uh, but every once in a while though, there are really great movies that are sequels, like Godfather 2, or Terminator 2, or uh, my personal most recent favorite, Top Gun Maverick. I mean, what, yeah, that's right. What a movie, like that's so much fun to see them actually in the plane, like doing all the flips and turns, and it's just, it's just really incredible. And, uh, and God loves a good sequel too, right? In Genesis 1, God just finished making the heavens and the earth, and, and he has just made humanity 
in his own image, and, and he has made it perfect and sinless, and, 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 and at the beginning of time, there's no hurt, there's no pain, there's no death, and when God looked at all that he made, he, made, he said, it is very good, and then, then he gave his mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, but then with Noah, the story's a little different. God was finished with humanity. He was recognizing that they're just corrupt and sinful all of the time and that they really needed a restart. And then he saw Noah, not a perfect man by any means, but one that God deemed as righteous. And yes, there's evil everywhere and there's death and crime everywhere. And when God looked and he saw all that he had made and how it was corrupt and violent, he said, this cannot multiply anymore. And so he tapped. Noah's shoulder. He tapped Noah's shoulder and he said, through you, I'm going to renew all of humanity and all of the earth. And then Noah, as Noah stepped out of the ark, he's told, be fruitful and multiply. You see, the same God that called Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply now calls Noah and his family to continue that greater legacy than that of Adam and Eve. You see, you've got to catch this about this part. This is an incredibly important part that is a theme throughout all of the Bible. God is incredibly consistent. He is unchanging. He is unrelenting. He's eager to carry out his plan. No matter what things look like obstacles to us, God is moving. Moving still. God's command never changes. He doesn't change, be fruitful and multiply. He doesn't change that. He continues that. The storm, pay attention here, guys. The storm may change everything in your life, but God's faithfulness never changes. Don't miss this. In the aftermath of the storm, God never changes. When our life is upside down, when life gets thrown, uh, throwing us around, when the storms of our lives rage, such as, such as we just can't get control over anything anymore, when we feel defeated, when we feel like giving up, you've got to remember God never changes. If you lose your job after faithfully serving a company for many years, God still never changes. If you receive a Fulbright scholarship for sports school of your dreams and you blew out your knee your senior year of high school, God never changes. If your retirement fund is dwindling at an increasingly fast rate because of the rising cost of food and housing, God never changes. In Romans 1.17, it says, every good, and, uh, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, God's graciousness never changes. In Isaiah 40, it says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. It will stand forever. 2 Timothy 2, 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Guys, God's faithfulness never changes. In Romans 8, it says, for I am sure that neither death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, God's love never changes. God never changes, no matter your pain, no matter your circumstances, no matter the storm. And sometimes, when we are in the middle of the storm, it can be hard to believe that. 
it can be hard to look past the next wave that's gonna hit. When everything gets settled, it can be easy to forget. It can easy be forget that God is present. You're simply trying to fight through the day to get through the storm you're in. But through the Bible, we see time and time again that God has proved himself incredibly consistent, incredibly consistent with Adam and Eve and Noah. Hard things don't happen to us in this life because God's plan changes. Hard things don't happen because he's sitting, waiting to do something. God isn't asleep at the wheel here. God proves himself that in those moments, he never changes. You see, immediately when the storm settles, it's hard to see that. It's difficult. Me and my family have gone through a season of incredibly difficult time. We've had a lot of changes in our life, one right after the other, that really are life-defining. Loss of family, loss of our regular environment, new levels of responsibility that we didn't necessarily ask for. But I believe as the storm calms, what I've noticed is that God shows himself as a never-changing God carry you through it. And what I've seen in my own life that despite the waves that hit and the challenges that come, God doesn't change. So how do we respond to this unchanging God? How do we respond in the aftermath of the storm? What what should we do when the choppy waters have calmed? Let's look at what Noah does because I think it's a great example to us of what we should do. It says in Genesis 8, 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and the Lord saw in his heart, or the Lord saw, said in his heart, Uh, I will never again curse the ground because of the man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Did you you catch the first thing that he does? Did you see what, what Noah did there in the aftermath of the storm? See, when the planet was decimated, when all that he knew was completely wiped out, Noah saw that his family survived, that God did what he said he was going to do, that God is consistent, and Noah was obedient to God's direction. As a result, all Noah could do was worship God. Church, pay attention to this. Faith is worshiping in the aftermath of the storm. Worshiping in the aftermath of the storm. That seems kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? I mean, all that devastation. I mean, why would Noah make an altar 
who worship God. I mean, why would we worship God in that? Because he is simply worthy. He's worthy. I mean, imagine you're Noah. You're, you're, you're thankful your family has survived. You've, you've been cooped up in a smelly giant boat for almost a year. You've been working tirelessly to keep a cruise ship of, of, of goats and elephants and lions and, and bears and, and helping them get along. And I'm, I'm sure you'd want some space, right? You'd want some space from that, that smelly air. But yet, he worships. He worships in the aftermath of the storm. Because our faith speaks the loudest when our circumstances are the hardest. Noah's faith, it speaks loud and clear here. It says something about who he is and it reflects to us who we could be. We trust God. We worship him in the aftermath. One of the um, incredible moments throughout human history uh, was the attempt to put men on the moon. The Apollo 11 mission um, leading up to it had a lot of devastating things that took place in, in, in the, uh, the Apollo um, uh, missions that they tried to do. There were a number of pilots, test pilots, that were pushing the boundaries of space and aircraft and uh, in the process of doing that, lost their lives trying to qualify to be an astronaut on a lunar mission. And even the Apollo 1 crew um, uh, died. They lost their life in the attempt to launch. Their, their cabin filled with oxygen and one spark ignited a fire that uh, killed them all. And, um, and it took 400,000 people 10 years to get to the point where Apollo 11 lunar lander was able to go out on the moon. And everyone pretty much knows those famous words that Neil Armstrong spoke when he uh, stepped on the moon for the very first time. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for all mankind. But what many people don't know is what happened just prior to that. You see, what happened just prior to uh, them uh, going out and taking the first steps on the moon is they had to wait. Mission control told them before they were to go out that they needed to take a strategic pause and wait before they were able to step out on the moon. I mean, imagine that. Your whole life has been leading up to this point of where you're about ready to step on the moon. Like everything you've ever done, everything you've ever attempted, the education, uh, the pushing, the boundaries of space, they were all coming down to this moment where you step on to this historic moment. Many people are believing the most uh, uh, important uh, thing that humanity has ever attempted and and yet they had to wait. And it was during this moment of waiting that Buzz Aldrin, he took out, he was wearing his spacesuit and he, wasn't, he didn't have his helmet on just yet. He took out a little bag from one of his pouches and he reached in to the pouch and he grabbed a silver cup. And then he reached out into the pouch and he grabbed a vial of wine. And he reached and he grabbed a cracker. You see, 
the moments just before they were going to step on the moon, Buzz Aldrin paused. He paused to worship. In one of the most historic moments in human history, before that desolate planet had its first steps ever taken on it, they paused. They paused to worship God. You see, whether you've survived a flood or a trip to the moon, the best response is to worship God. I had a a pastor tell me one time that, uh, you know, you are either in a storm, leaving a storm, or about ready to head into a storm. And can I tell you, from personal experience, in the midst of the storm, we want it to be over so badly. We want the pain to go away now, but there is a greater hope that we can experience when we recognize that even in the midst of that challenge, even in the midst of that storm, even in the midst of that pain, God is worthy of worship. See, I believe that when the dust has settled on something catastrophic in your life, God is still worthy of worship. See, when our life is good and you feel like nothing can knock you down and you're proudful enough to say, yes, I did it, I got out of that storm, instead say, yes, God is worthy of worship. You could imagine a room this size that there's some people who have experienced some serious pain recently, that you're going through a storm or you're just recovering. Wherever you're at in your life, why don't I just challenge you with this idea? God hasn't been sleeping on the job. God is still working his plan. God is incredibly consistent and faithful. He's still worthy of worship. Your circumstances do not change God's worthiness of his worship. They highlight the need to worship the infinite God. And perhaps there's no greater reminder of that need to worship him than when we take communion, than when we take the cup and the bread and are reminded that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. He went through the greatest storms so that when we step through our storms, we might be someone who, that he might be someone who understands where we're at and that even if we put ourselves in those storms because of our sin and our behavior, he still paid the penalty for that sin. And so what we're gonna do in just a moment is we're gonna play this song during this song, what I want you to do is, is you don't have to sing along. You don't have to stand. I'd encourage you to sit back and to reflect. Reflect on these words. That even in the midst of a storm, he's enough for me. He's enough. It's not about removing the pain and turmoil, although there's a place to ask God for that. But it's about worshiping him he's worthy because he deserves it even in the storm let's pray father we we want to worship you god as as we reflect and focus on what you have done in our lives 
Lord, whether people are are pre-storm, they're in the storm, or they're just in the aftermath of one. God, I pray that you would guide them and be reminding them that you're still worthy of worship. That, Lord, you are consistent no matter our pain, that you are there and faithful despite the waves that hit. So, Lord, as we sit back and reflect, may we be reminded of the gospel, which rescues us from the storm because of who you are. Thank you for joining us this week on the Crossroads Grace podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening from. If you are interested in getting involved in our community or want to find out more information, visit us online at crossroadsgrace.org. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads Grace podcast.